Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters, and welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Aaron Yoshi, and today we have special guest Robert Trujillo. Robert is a fine artist, illustrator, muralist, and children's book creator. He illustrates and writes bilingual books to share stories of diversity and joy, like for Quan's first flat top. He grew up in the Bay Area, which has impacted his inspiration and narrative. Through storytelling, he scratches a service on many untold stories. He is the founder of Come BM Books and the co-founder of Treasure Struggle Collective. Rob is a proud father of a teenager and a toddler. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hello, Not Real Art family. We are so excited today to welcome... Robert Trujillo. Robert is an amazing illustrator. He's a visual artist. He's a book author. And he's a muralist as well. I've known him for a long time. So I'm just so pleased to have Robert here with us today. Hi, Rob. How's it going? Okay. Hanging in there. Yay. Yay. Okay, Rob. So I just wanted to dive through some of your journey. If you could tell us a little bit about it, you know, the Not Real Art family, we love interviewing creatives and visual artists, especially. We just love having folks on to understand some of their trajectory. So could you tell us a little bit about some of your early art-making memories? Yeah, so when I was a kid, I really loved the airbrushed jeans and shirts and overalls and all that stuff. And I asked my mom, you know, where do they do that? How do you get that done? And she took me to a place called Shirtique at Hilltop Mall. People in the Bay Area remember uh, this is in Richmond, California, and back when malls was the place to go. And that's where I met uh, Dream from TDK in Oakland and just, you know, got to get my inspiration about, you know, oh, wow, that's who does it. That's how it's done. And then she got me a book called Spray Can Art by, uh, I think it was Jim Prigoff and Henry Chalfant, the one who did the uh, Style Wars. And so, yeah, as soon as I saw that, my mind was just... I was just captivated from that moment on and pretty much just like an obsessed kid with graffiti from, from that point on. And then most of it, I just kind of did on my own. And then it wasn't until junior high that I started to meet other kids who also did it. And it was very like, wow, you do that too. Oh, wow. So those are my first memories before 
anything really. Awesome. And so did you end up studying art in school? Did you take like, you know, classes in it? What was that kind of like? Yeah. So I would say the first study was just like with friends, like, you know, when you have your crews or your family, it's like just, you know, other taggers, bombers, writers, pieces. That was the first school. So I learned a ton from them before I even got to college, you know, about like symmetry and contrast and balance, like so many things just spending like hours and hours in my sketchbook, sometimes on the wall. But when I went to college, I went to SF State and I was studying ethnic studies a little bit here and there and then taking graphic design classes. And I thought that's what I wanted to do. But, you know, when you get to college, you don't really know what you're going to learn in the classes. So I took lots of classes in industrial design, I remember. And, you know, it's just like, I don't want to design a mouse or, you know, a picture or something. So I started leaving those classes, leaving that realm and then taking classes in the fine art part of the college. And, you know, acrylic painting, oil painting, drawing, sculpture, all that stuff started to pique my interest more. And I had stopped writing for a while. So I was just starting to bug out on, on murals and stuff. and. That was at SF State. And then um, I went to Academy of Art to try to pursue illustration more because I was starting to get more into like illustration and trying to figure out what is that? What does it mean? And I only went there for a year before I dropped out. But those are like my early college experiences. Mm -hmm. And when did you know that like this is what you wanted Mm -hmm. to do with your life, you know, as a career? I don't know if it was an exact moment where I knew what I wanted to do, but I it was like, you know, I mean, there was a time where I was also really fascinated with music and DJing and like collecting records and learning all the techniques of like beat juggling and scratching and all that stuff. But I would say ever since I was a kid, like I just really enjoyed and had a passion for it. Like no one needed to tell me to do it. I I just did it because I loved it. So I would say early on, probably in my teenage years, I was like, I want to do that, but not really knowing how to do it or what that path was going to be like. Right, right. And how did like growing up in the Bay Area, how did that influence, you know, your work? How does it kind of influence your upbringing and stuff? I think the Bay Area, like so many large metropolises or cities, is like a hub for um, creative artwork and graffiti. I mean, you have a really wide array of people who were born and raised here, who grew up here, but also people who came to the city and made it their home. You know, so many different facets of art, whether it be through, you know, like the history of murals in the Mission District, that really impacted me as a kid. My mom worked at San Francisco General Hospital for over 40 years, so I always went through the Mission and saw, you know, all the murals, like from the Masters, and just grew up really inspired by that. And then the graffiti, like uh, in Oakland, they had the the 23rd Yard and and the Cycle City in San Francisco, and all these little spots here and there throughout the Bay where you could go and see these underground galleries, so to speak. Those two things were really huge in my development as an artist and being like, oh, that's something I could do. Was your mom supportive of, of you as an artist, like along the way? Yeah, yeah. My mom was supportive. She even tagged a little bit herself when she was a kid. And so uh. un- understood it when I was going through that phase. Yeah, she was super supportive. I don't think her or my dad knew exactly how the hell are you going to make a living? How are you going to? you know, be an adult with that. But (laughs) I figured it out eventually. But yeah, she was supportive. I got to ask her about that. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah. So like, what were some of your early jobs? Like, did you go right into doing art or did you like have a bumpy road along the way? What, what did that look like? Oh yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I don't think my trajectory is that different from most artists is that it's like, it's not a straight line. It's not a circle. It's not a, it's not a zigzag. It's all over the freaking place. My first job was like organizing a library, then working in like an antique shop and then working at an art store is when I started to meet other weirdos like myself. I actually met Fresh, who's like an OG Oakland writer at the art store that I worked at. Um, and my good friend from my crew, DOA at the time, Mikey, he worked at the art store, so he hooked me up with that job. But um, those were like my first jobs. And then right after I had that, you know, I started teaching, teaching the little that I knew. And I taught for, you know, almost 10 years. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. So you kind of started, did you start out like, it sounds like you were kind of like, you know, in the the hip hop way, doing multiple elements, you know, you were like DJing a little here, doing some graph here. So did you start kind of doing graph in the visual arts? Was that, and then how did that start to evolve into more illustration and then into children's books? Like how did that trajectory kind of look? Well, in the graph world, I always loved people who did characters. So like Hex in L.A., um, Motu in, in Paris, Twist in San Francisco. I mean, there were so many people who did really amazing characters. So I always, in addition to working on my letters, wanted to be good at characters as well. Never was really into like throw-ups as much, but like characters, letters was always a big thing. So from an early on, I really wanted to draw the human form and like exaggerate it. When I got into my early 20s, illustration started to pull me for a couple of things like, you know, animation, like some of the Studio Ghibli stuff, anime, like Akira. And I think being a little bit fascinated with with comic books, I didn't really grow up reading them, but started to get into them much later in my years. So yeah, I started to get interested in those areas. And then when I became a dad, it just kind of took off like I saw the potential to get into the realm of kids books and, and figure out you know what is this and how does it work yeah I think like as a new mom I've realized how limited the storylines are in children's books yeah. like there's just not very much for parents of color and with kids mm-hmm. that are biracial too you know when you were kind of discovering this early on where did you start to see your niche being for that or like you know somewhere that you wanted to specialize in in children's books I would say there were a couple of people in the beginning who I reached out to. So like Doug One from TMF, he did a book called Turntable Timmy that was around the early 2000s. Him, I'm blanking on his name, Michael Perry was the author and Qbert, uh, they worked on this book together. And I remember being like, wow, you could do that? Like, because all of the kids books that I was getting were, especially if they were about black folks, they were about people from the past and stuff. That was like painful and things that happened like decades, you know, 100 years ago, which is good and all. But I wanted some contemporary stories about, you know, kids like my son, kids like, you know, other family members that we had. And that just wasn't there. The whole movement to like, we need diverse books and the demand for them to diversify it didn't start until I want to say like the mid 2010s or something like that, or maybe the early 2010s. Yeah, Doug, uh, Mike Perry, those are some of the first people who... I was like, wow, I could do this. Uh, Maya Gonzalez, she had been working for Children's Book Press in San Francisco, and she she has kind of like a muralist style too. So those were some of the first people that really interested me. Kadir Nelson's another one. Yeah, there's a lot. Great. And so what was your first children's book, and how did you, what was kind of the journey to get that made? 
Oh my God. So getting into the kids book world is like, it's very gated. It's very fortressed up. It's very blocked off. Like there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through to get in to do it the official way. But being that we grew up in the era of like hip hop where you, it's very DIY, do it yourself. At first I tried to go the traditional way and like get in through their uh, suggested doors and pathways. And after a while it became disillusioned. I was like, you know, screw this, you know, I don't got to put up with this. And so I just started working on my own. Ironically, the minute I decided that I was going to do it independently and like self-publish a book instead of trying to get on with a major was the, the moment that I got a book deal from, you know, pretty one of the largest Latino publishers in the in the U.S., Arte Publico. That was 2013. So that's when I be, officially began. But I had started sending my work out in 2007, 2008 and just getting nothing, really no response. I mean, in hindsight, you look at your old work and you're like, I wasn't really ready. But at the same time, there's a lot of stuff I see out there that gets published that is not really ready. So I'm like, <laughs> mm. anyway, uh, yeah, I, I You're like, I does somebody went, have a friend? Like who? Yeah, exactly. Who I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I didn't know anybody. So right. now I know lots of people, but it takes time to build that and to, you know, meet the community. Who are the different team people that make a children's book possible? And it's it takes a while to learn all the different team players and to like, really get in there and meet fellow people just the way it would be if you're trying to get into graph or murals or whatever. So did you start illustrating other people's children's books first or was the first thing you did write your own? Both. So I decided I was going to write and illustrate my own first. And then when I got the deal, it was to illustrate someone else's book. So I actually illustrated two books before I finished writing and illustrating my book. So the first one was called uh, Bean and Cheese Taco First Day. And the second one was I Am Salsa Creek, written by Melissa Reyes. And then when I came up with For Khan's First Flat Top, which I wrote and illustrated, it was around the same time that I got the deals for the other ones. And so it took a lot more uh, confidence to take on the writing part because I was used to drawing and visual arts. But the writing part, that was hard, just figuring out what makes a good kid's book. And we as parents... We know because you have to read the books to the kid a thousand times in a row. And if it's a crappy book, you're going to hide that book so that you don't have to read it again. If it's a good one, you're like, all right, fine. I, I can read that one again. But it takes a while. Yeah, you're like, this one's going away. We don't exactly. need to find this one again. Or, you know, sometimes you could tell when somebody makes a children's book and it's like more for adults than for kids. And yes. so your kid's like not really into it and you're kind of finding joy out of it. And you're like, well, this doesn't work either because it's yeah. like they find no joy in this. So mm -hmm. they're interested. And then you're like, ah, you know, have to pull out another book. Um, yeah. So can you explain like what were some of the storylines for those first books? Because they were really epic in your journey. Yeah. So like you said, when I was, when my son was born, when he was, it was 2004, I was like, where are the books about kids like him? Like I'm a mixed kid. He's a mixed kid. He has curly hair. Why are there no books about kids like this? And furthermore, he was learning Spanish and I was learning Spanish. Why were there very few bilingual books with kids like him? A lot of the bilingual books that I would see were from Spain or they were predicting white kids or white passing Latinos. And I was like, there is a whole array of Latinos. Why is this not in books? Um, and then for the, like I said, for African-American books, a lot of the stories were about things of the past, not day-to-day uh, -day life. So the first story was about, it was written by a Latina and it was about, you know, siblings basically and, and like caring and being 
kind of open, looking out for one another. And I Am Salsa Creek was about, Melissa wrote it in the voice of the creek. She wrote it as if the creek itself had a voice. And that came from her being a teacher and not being able to find books that talked about the ecology of this creek in uh, Oakland, California. And in the Bay Area, I'm sure a lot of places have this, but in the Bay Area, there's tons of creeks and they all have really interesting backstories and names. So she wrote that book and I illustrated it and it was just really cool to talk about the native history, the ecology, you know, not gentrification, but like colonialization and to talk about that with kids. And then when Furkan came around, I didn't want to do a story that was about pain. I wanted to do a story about happiness and maybe a little bit of anxiety. And so this kid wants to get his first flat top, which is big in the black community and the Afro-Latino community as well, going to the barbershop. And so that is something where I pitched it to people and they were like, I'm not really sure. You know, like they just had question marks. And I was like, are you, are you serious? Like, you don't know how many people go to the barbershop anyway. That's why I, how I knew, like, I was like, all right, this is going to be popping with the people who get it. And it was. And then at the same time, other offers for kids books started to come in, like One of a Kind Like Me, written by Lauren Mayeno, which is about her actual life story. Her son wanted to be a princess. And he didn't know it at the time, but he was questioning his gender. His gender was fluid. I'm not sure how he identifies now, but he's come out as gay. And so, you know, there was always that need there. And it was just trying to push the industry, which is like a huge ship in that direction. And then also trying to just get on your own little speedboat and like figure out how to make it happen and go there on your own. I see the the industry as a whole getting a lot better now. So, you know, you're a very disciplined artist, like you draw all the time. Can you talk us through a little bit about like, what does your discipline practice look like? I think of it a lot like athletes or people who are are fighters, like in order to be at the top of your game, you got to go to the gym, you got to run around the track, you got to lift the weights, you got to do all that. And so I know I'm not like the most talented artist by any means, but what keeps me fresh is just practicing, like trying to do a lot of self-directed work. Like I know I will get jobs from people, you know, I do illustration for lots of clients. I know I will get book deals from people. I know you know, that we as a crew can do walls and CYS, but a lot of times I have to assign myself projects. So that way, for one, I can stay fresh, you know, like skill wise, but two, have an outlet for those ideas that make no freaking sense to other people. And so I think that discipline has been about staying fresh, but also just staying sane as an artist. Like we, people are like, how do you get it with your ideas? And it's like, how do you turn the ideas off? Like, it's just constantly, like, even before you even finish drinking your coffee you had like 10 ideas so it's just a way to stay fresh and like have a creative outlet I love that because you know like I often assign myself projects or build projects around future ideas just because I need a placeholder to put them you know what I mean so that they can go somewhere or like I'll basically like oh yeah this could go for something or it could be for nothing but you know you just need that outlet and I love that it keeps you fresh because like hanging out with Rob he'll draw all the time like and it's really impressive to see because I don't have that sort of practice like I have to kind of like set aside time but you kind of will do it in between time and I think that's really amazing to kind of watch that journey well some of that comes from parenthood too because like when your kid is born I mean I became a parent at 24 so you know while everybody was out partying and like doing all that stuff I was at home and you know if I'm at home with the kid I can't go to the wall and if the kid is like crying you know blowing out their diaper throwing up or like they want to go play I can't be at the wall for eight hours 
So a lot of it is compartmentalizing your time and learning how to multitask and like do a little bit of this while they're napping, do a little bit of this while they're playing. So, you know, for a while I fell off when my, I became a parent, but then I also learned to do a little bit here and there. I think that that's really speaks to me as a new parent because, you know, I actually start having kids much later. So I was used to being able to have that freedom and Mm -hmm. it's been a whole life change to be like, oh, actually, I don't have that. So Mm -hmm. I have to compartmentalize my time. I thought I was really efficient with time before, but now I'm like, oh, you have to get uber efficient. (laughs) Yes, yes. You take it to the next level. (laughs) Yes, because you got someone coming up to you and be like, excuse me, hello, food? Yeah. Oh, you're on a call. Okay, well, can you talk to me right now? Because I need this now. Yep, I want to play. Yeah, Yeah. I want to play now. Yeah, Yeah, no work today. I want to play. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Okay, so talking about some of that exercise workout brain, which I think is really amazing in your craft. When you like start to do a book, if you when you're just like an idea comes along and you're going to actually start to like scope out a book, what does that look like? How do you do something like that? It's just like doing a wall. It's just like tons of research and. You can't really come up with the best idea on your first go around. Like whatever idea you may draw on a napkin might be dope, you know, at that moment. But when you get to something that's, you know, huge, like a wall, or you get to like the page, how the book turns, how it goes from page to page matters. And so it's a lot of trial and error and a lot of uh, iterating. I remember I would tell that to young artists all the time. Like, don't just satisfy, don't get dissatisfied with the first idea. Try out a whole bunch of different ones. You know, and the cool thing is that because we're artists, we can do that pretty easily. We can, if we train ourselves to just, okay, let me try it in blue. Let me try it in red. Let me put this person over here instead and see how that looks. And then from that, you got a whole bunch of really interesting things to choose from. And you can choose like the best idea. And then with kids books, it's just a lot of research usually. Um, What does the street sign look like? What do the cars in this neighborhood look like? A lot of a really hard part is trying to make the characters consistent from the beginning to the end of the story so that you you can tell it's still the same person. And I've done that on my own and work with art directors and it's always challenging. And I think, you know, if I was working on a wall, it'd be like, okay, is the red on the left side of the wall the same as the red on the right? Why not? Making a whole, if I, if I got to mix the color, making a whole huge batch of it so that way it doesn't look all weird from one side to the other. Yeah, it's that. Gotcha. Gotcha. But I guess also because, you know, that's a little bit about the visual arts, but you also write. So how is the writing side for you too? Like, what does that look like to get your story down? I mean, to me, the writing is reading. So it's reading a lot. I want to say I've read probably like three or 400 kids books. And that's just for one, taking them and checking them out at the library. so, So my kid could read them and I could read it to them twice now since I have two kids. But also looking at the ones that speak to me, like, oh, this looks dope, reading it. And then reading them to kids, like at schools and school presentations to other people's kids. And then looking at the industry, like what's what's coming out? What are other people writing? And just reading it and reading it over and over again. And through that, understanding the craft, there's a whole craft to like picture book writing. And children's books have so many different facets, depending on what age your kid is. I would say a lot of reading and then, you know, building your story first with a sentence and then a few sentences and then 
as you get better, you start to learn about some tricks of the trade, like three act structure and like inciting incident and like conflict. And there's so many little things that you learn about how to make a good story. But uh, I would say reading a lot. And I guess just, you know, it sometimes is helpful, I feel like for me anyway, to understand people's challenges, you know, because sometimes it's like all we see on social media or all we show sometimes to the external world is like the wins. Like, look at me, I'm doing amazing. Look at all the amazing stuff. But sometimes the challenges are where the real growth happens and, you know, really where you're put to the test. So could you talk to us about like a challenge that you've had in this book journey? Yeah. So I worked on a book, which I I won't say the name of it, but I worked on a a middle grade book. And the story that I wrote is not the story that was published. It was like heavily edited. Part of that has to do with, you know, each publisher is like, you know, it's almost like a TV station. Like what flies on NBC is not going to be the same for MTV. You know what I mean? So the idea that I had in mind, the way I wrote it was very like harsh and the way that the editor tailored it was to make it a little bit more calm or or palatable, I guess. So it was a lesson in learning. You're not the shit. You're not as good as you think you are. Like there's some craft still to be learned, of course, but also pick your battles and like learn which TV station or which publisher you want to approach with the idea. So that way it's something that you really love and can get down with. And it's something that they can also champion because it fits in line with what they also believe in. If you try to, for something with someone who doesn't believe it, they just either they're not going to get it or they're going to end up messing it up. So that's one rule or excuse me, one lesson. Another one I think is like I was saying before about the consistency of the the characters. And so working with the art director and an editor team where it's like, you know, you, you kind of want to be like, Hey, it's done. You know, like I've already finished, but they're like, no, actually you missed this, 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 and this. And it's like, ah, how many times I got to, you know, fix this. But in, in the end, it makes for a, a better story, something that people of all ages will be able to read quickly. And I don't mean literally read, but like also visually, they'll be able to see it quickly. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I also want to ask you about the power of no. You know, I think that no is yeah. something that is so powerful in an artist's journey. You know, like what are things that you would say yes to and that you take on and things versus that you don't take on? Like what are things that you're just like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that? Yeah, I think when it comes to walls where they just figured out they want a mural last week and they want to tell you, all of the pieces that need to be on the wall. Yeah, I'm not doing that. You've seen what I do or you've seen what the crew does, you know, give us the space to like interpret the idea and also respect the fact that we've been like, we're the experts in this part. You're the experts in your part, you know, making sure that we both get paid correctly and that there's respect for the art form on both sides. So that way the end product becomes the best it can possibly be. Like if it's really to communicate to young people, as you say, it is, then you shouldn't be using imagery and like ideas for how to do a mural from like 30 years ago. Like what are they going to get down with now? That's something. Um, When people approach me and they say, you know, I want to do a logo design, I say, hell no, because I don't do logos. Logos are not illustrations. Illustrations are not logos. I think a lot of it is that I won't, that I'll say no to is when I can tell that the people who approach me are not completely clear about what they want to do or they're, not respecting my time and asking for something to be done right away without having what they call a rush fee attached to it or anyone could really fit what they need done. Like you don't need me. You could get someone else to do that. Like, 
and I don't take it personal like I used to. Like, oh, you don't want to do my style? It's like, that's all good. Like, I'm not the right fit for that thing. And that is okay. The things I say yes to are things where people have really looked at what I do and can tell how I would best fit in a project. Um, and that's really comforting to know that there are people who actually look at what you've done. I mean, they don't have to know my whole life history, just looking at the website and seeing, you know, here's how this work will fit in, whether that be on a wall or illustration. I, I would say yes to things that are new and challenging um, that expand my skill set that I actually want to learn. So I'm interested in animation and learning storyboarding. And so getting a job where I can kind of flex that new skill is something where I would take that. But yeah, and I, in general, it's like having respect for the artists and knowing what they do and like tailoring your request to them and then being open to growth, I would say. Mm -hmm. I really love that because, you know, I feel like no is kind of a place of privilege. Like it comes with time when we're all starting out in the game, you like yeah. just kind of say yes to everything because you yeah. want to get paid and you want work. But then finally, when you get to a place where you are a little bit more sustainable, to be able to say no is like such a, it's such a blessing. I, every time I say no, I thank myself, you know? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you don't need to do everything. You know? yeah. yeah, I always feel like it's a gift for myself. Like I, I get really big on like, I, I'm not going to feel bad about saying no, because I know I just gave myself a gift of like either right. more time, spaciousness, not the headache or whatever else mm -hmm. is attached to it. And I think all of that is such a blessing to have. Um, yeah, you're saying yes to something else. One of my pet peeves is like when people say, you know, it's, let's say it's like they want to do something in San Francisco and they're like, OK, would you paint like a location in San Francisco? Like, you know, we want to paint something that that's going to be amazing for the community. So they'll pick a landmark that already exists in the community. And I'm like, yo, my mural is not going to top the landmark. Like if they want to see that, they could just drive there and yeah, see don't it. Look at the landmark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like you, you don't need to do a Golden Gate Bridge for real. OK. Yeah. When you could just go and drive to the Golden Gate Bridge and it's like five minutes away, like it, mm -hmm. it's way more glorious, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, if you were in L.A., people would be like, why are you painting a mural of the Griffith Observatory? Like I can go look at the Griffith Observatory. I don't need to see it on your wall. Totally. Yeah. I think one of my friends put it, I love it, where she said, it's like painting vineyards in Napa. It's like, that's all you see. And then you're going to paint the same thing. Like that's redundant and boring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, totally. I, I love no. So thanks. Yeah. You know, you touched a little bit about the crew. So you started this crew, Treasure Struggle. You know, I'm part of the crew. We're family. So tell me a little bit about like, why did you want to start this crew back in the day? I think I mean, it was at the time where, you know, it's funny, I'm going through this as a parent of a teenager. Like when you're a teenager, like your parents are like telling you all this stuff about politics or social justice. And you're like, please, like, please, I don't want to hear it anymore. All I want to do is like kick it and like go hang out with friends. And then when I got to my early 20s, I was like, actually, some of those issues matter to me as well. And how could I actually do something about it? I don't necessarily want to get arrested or beaten over the head, but I do want to do something that like maybe hits someone who doesn't really care about it at all. So artwork is a good way to fit in there. At the time when meeting uh, Scott and Ben, Ben was already doing political artwork. So was Scotty. And I forget. I mean, we had met before when they were both a part of other crews. We all were a, a part of other things. And it was just really cool to come together and say, let's do something 
first, we didn't even have a name just to do something together to do a show and to talk about some of these issues. And then to come up with a name and like a crew and, and you were there at the beginning too. So just to figure out, okay, how are we going to take this to the next level beyond just what we've seen our, our heroes do? Like, how can we do something that talks about what's happening now? So I think we are a part of a legacy of people taking artwork to talk about current and past social issues and to also illustrate what could possibly be. Like we already got the stuff that we don't like. What do we want to see? So that was the reason behind it. And I'm just, you know, really proud to be in a crew with you and learn so much from you and really proud to have worked on some just really amazing projects with you and that which I think have benefited us for sure, but also like helped contribute to a larger conversation, which says, you know, we're not going to stand for the imbalance of power and oppression and all that stuff. In fact, here's what we would like to see in its place. Yeah. I mean, I think about how blessed we were to come together at such a young age. Like I remember Rob actually interviewed me like it was a job. Like we sat outside. I don't remember where it was, but we sat outside somewhere and you, yeah. And you straight interviewed me. You gave me all these questions and then you're like, yeah, she's cool. All right. She's in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Which is um, funny because we didn't interview uh, me, Scott and Ben. We didn't interview <laughs> each other at all. We were just like, you like this? Yeah, I like this. Okay, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I totally remember. It was like, oh, because it felt like you guys were trying to build a little bit more structure. So then they're like, oh, the, the Yoshi, you know, she has structure. She brings structure. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> to the table. There, there, um, there would be no structure of TYS without Yoshi. <laughs> yeah. So our crew is called Trust Your Struggle. We've been, some of us have actually been working together since about like 98, 99, but officially became a crew in 2003. So like Rob said, we did a lot of work very organically originally, but all around kind of social justice and causes as well as just really uplifting marginalized voices, which are a lot of times voices of our our own communities. I'm working in solidarity to tell stories that are often need some extra light on them. So with that being said, then how do you feel like working collaboratively has affected you as an artist? Like, you know, it sounds like the storybooks are also very much, the children's books are very much collaborative. How do you feel about collaboration? Like, what have you learned through that? Well, I think if it wasn't for us working together, we wouldn't get better. You know, there's, there's stuff that you do where I'm like, damn, I wish I could do that. Or I'm like peeping game and like taking notes and be like, okay, now I'm going to implement that in my work as well. I think steel sharpens steel. Like as a collective, we are all so talented in many different ways. And for us just to bear witness to one another and to work together, it really helps us all get better, you know, in quick spurts when we have to do a show or a wall or a project, but also over time. I think that collaborative is the way to go the farthest. You know, there's that African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with, you know, a crew of people. I think because we work together, we're much more powerful and we can make a message that much stronger. And through our resources and like connections and people, we can reach a much wider audience as well. Like people out of the choir, people who are not already with it and like in the know, but people who have no clue what we're talking about. That's what really interests me. So I think it's really important to collaborate because as an individual, yeah, you got skill, you got talent, but you're not the focus. You're not the shit. Like, sure, you can make work that is about what you want to do, but I'm not here just to make work about what I love. I do love doing that, but I also want to make work that 
it affects and it has a profound effect on people in a good way and sometimes challenges people and makes them uncomfortable. I think collaboration is a really incredible way to do that and to grow as an artist and to really give something to other artists and to, you know, humanity. Absolutely. Yeah, I always feel so blessed because sometimes, you know, I meet artists who work solo and they're like in their studio, so they feel even more isolated, but like on the street and then you get to meet so many people and then working collaboratively, you know, it's just such a gift in so many ways. And and I remember early on in my career, people would say like, yo, if you went solo, like as a girl, you could go really far. And I was like, yeah, yeah but how fun is that? Like, I would rather celebrate with all my friends around me together than to be there by myself being like, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like, it's, I mean, it's lonely too. Yeah. That's a lonely journey, you know? Okay. So something else that has been just, I, I've been really talking a lot to other artists about, and I just love this idea. So what to you is artistic sovereignty? What does that mean to you? Artistic sovereignty. I think it's the ability to to study and practice away from the crowd's eye or social media or, you know, like it's the chance to work on your stuff without everybody necessarily seeing it. So that way, you know, if you want to share it, you can share it with like people of your choice or a number of people of your choice. So that way you can not be bombarded by, you know, what other people think you should be doing or trying to catch up to others. So I think that's one thing. I think sovereignty also is about wanting to talk about some stuff that maybe no one else is talking about and stumbling through that because if you're the first one talking about it you're not going to be able to communicate it the best right away like it takes time to really own that skill and to i don't know make as many bad paintings as possible until you get to a good one where people can look at it and either ask a question or get it right away yeah i would say you know, having the chance to work on talking about some stuff that no one has ever seen before and also having the time and space to really work on your crap without everybody looking over your shoulder. Okay. What does artistic sustainability mean to you? Ooh, that's a good one. I think artistic sustainability is, again, collaborating with people. So that way, you know, on this project, someone maybe takes more of a lift than you do and you're supporting them or or vice versa. I think it's really important whatever art form you do to have a community of people like it's just so there's so much wealth in being able to work with other people and lift up other artists i think also taking breaks you know like i love the nap ministry where she's like this woman talks about you know rest and that being a form of resistance like yes we are artists for the movement but we don't have to burn ourselves to a crisp in order to show people that we're really down like we can do our work take a break and come back. And, you know, I think if you're really down for the issue, like you have to take care of yourself so you can take care of, you know, the artwork that's really going to affect other people. And it's okay to to leave and come back. I would rather people take breaks and leave and come back than to be like, you know what, screw it. I'm not doing this anymore. And then they become, I don't know, a corporate artist who never does anything related to it anymore. So I would say, you know, when it comes to like speaking about issues or fame or wealth, like it all takes time and we really do have to take the marathon versus sprint approach. Right. Right. I mean, speaking of that, like, because you're a father, because, you know, like you have family obligations, you have parental yeah. obligations, you have artistic obligations. What do you do for your wellness or to replenish yourself? 
Well, I started doing this thing two years ago where I take days off of social media. So I do one day on and one day off. So on my days off, I don't look at it. I don't check it at all. And that has been really helpful because for one, you don't realize how much of your time it eats up just kind of looking at what other people are doing. And then sometimes, you know, media outlets can choose what what do they say? What bleeds leads like you can really be traumatized by a lot of the reoccurring things that happen. So it's important for me to take a break from social media. That for sure. I think this coming year, I'm going to do two days off and one day on. I think exercise is really important. It seems like some basic shit, but like going out and walking or riding your bike or swimming or running or lifting weights, soccer, whatever, moving your body beyond just like getting up on uh, scaffolding and painting it's just really important because as we get older, our bodies change. We got to keep them. You got to take care of them. I think eating right, like, you know, my son has heard me ad nauseum say you got to eat breakfast, lunch and dinner. And it's not, you know, and everybody doesn't have to eat that way, but it is important to have, you know, vegetables, fruits, shit like water, shit <laughs> like that is important. Yeah. I think having relationships with people in real life, not just online. So like people who you can talk to, see in person, like hug, you know, handshake, whatever, like having relationships with people is also a good way to take care of yourself. There's probably more, but I'm blanking on other ones. Yeah, I think all of those are super powerful. And I just love like, you know, like you're real about your fitness. Like there are times where I'm like, oh, Rob really does do pushups and sit-ups every day. Like that's impressive. You know, you had a, a nice routine going there for a minute. So Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't do it every day. I do it like three times a week. How about that? That's amazing. You know, that's amazing. But I mean, you've had that practice and that's the most important thing. Like you've been dedicated to that for years. Like, you know, where I'm like, dang, why are you looking swole? You know, and then it's like, oh, well, because you really do this every, you know, every couple of days for like the last however many years, you know. You so know what? I think- I, I, this past year, I tried to get better at riding my bike. So I've been trying to ride my bike once a week, every week. And it's it's not that much like you know, in the scheme of things of people who ride hella far, but I was like, that's a good way to just consistently stay in shape because I always go to the post office to ship merch and stuff like that. So I ride my bike there. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. How do you like stay fresh, like reinvent yourself, you know, stay relevant? Because I think that's the thing, you know, like we're kind of in that middle age where Mm. we're like not super young and fresh and shiny. And, you know, we're not like, an OG yet. So how do you kind of in this middle stage of your life, how do you feel like you try and keep yourself relevant or reinvent yourself along the way? Hmm. I would say I struggle with this of staying fresh, but I do try to do different projects. So I'll do something that's like creating art about different subjects. So like I'll have my kids book stuff or it's been a while since I did a wall, but like I have a wall or I'll do some lettering and all of those feeds like a different need to create. And it's important to like have those different things. So that way I don't feel like one part of me is just like oh, all like tied up and can't express it. So I think it's important to just take a break, not do anything, <laughs> not do any art, just enjoy something, a movie, a song, a walk. I don't know. And I find that when I take a break and have some some space, like it gives me more ideas when I come back to the drawing board, so to speak. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I just want to shout out because I love the stuff with your wellness. So Rob made a sticker pack of wellness stickers and I actually put them on my phone because I just, they're just so helpful to remind myself so that I look at them every day. But like one says, put down your phone, which I love having. <laughs> the other one is stretch and then get outside, homie. And I like have them on my phone. So That's every day, like when <laughs> I love it, get outside, homie. I love it. And it's like got a little tent. And so he sent me these stickers and I love them so much that I had to put them on my phone. Like usually I give stickers that people send me to my daughter because she loves stickers. But I was like, nah, these are mine. You know, these are going. <laughs> I ha- I think I have another one on my computer. I just really, I really love them. I think they're such a beautiful things. So yeah, check out Robert's uh, wellness stickers because they're really, really amazing. But I want to also ask you, so who are some artists that inspired you along the way first? And then I would love for you to share who are some younger artists that inspire you now? Hmm. Let's see. Oh, well, I love music. So music is a really big thing. I would say Classy. She's the MC from Echo Park. She's a rapper, mom. I really dig her work. There's a woman named Olivia Fields. She she mostly works digital. She's an illustrator. She's younger than me. I really love her work. Abel Haywood, she started this hashtag called Drawing While Black, where a lot of black artists get to share their work. There are so many. When it comes to older artists, oh my gosh, I mean, I could be here all day. <laughs> okay, top three. Well, well, and top I- is hard because top is like, you know, it's yeah. relative. Yeah. I mean, Juan Alicia is still a big influence. Like ever since I met her when I was in college, you know, as a young 20 something. And she still is just amazing to this day. Yolanda Lopez. Did you get to take her class? I did. Me and Ben took her class together. I was so jealous. I remember yeah. when I think Ben came up to me, he's our another crewmate. And he was like, yo, I got into Juan Alicia's class. And I was like, ah, oh, so jealous. Yeah, yeah we oh, both took her class. She was, oh, she was amazing. And she would be like, you know, catch you slipping back, Roberto, and I'd be like, what, what, huh? And, you know, <laughs> make sure I'm paying attention. Yeah, Yolanda Lopez, rest in peace, who just passed away, OG artist, illustrator. Those are the only ones that are coming to mind right now. There's so many that I'm just blanking. Yeah, absolutely. And then, okay, what about some newer artists that you just find inspiration from? Well, Olivia Fields, who I mentioned, Abel Haywood, I mentioned... Those are artists who are illustrators. I can't think of any people on the wall that I've seen recently. Besides, uh, what's her name? Wolfpack. I really like her work. I forget what her full name is, but Wolfpack. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. Great. Great. Okay, we'll check them out because I'm excited to see their work, those that I don't know. Okay, so a lot of artists experience this thing called artist block. And I've heard this saying that's like artist block is for amateurs, which I... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I totally get. But how do you get yourself through if you're starting to have blocks? Like, what do you do? Because you got to work past them. Yeah, I mean, you can't be a successful working artist without having a method for getting through it. Because, you know, in my 20s, I would have had the whole day to be like, oh, let me think about this painting. But as I said, when I became a parent, you just don't have as much time. And to be a professional means to not only work to have skill and talent, but to be able to do it on schedule, on time, and to do it 
quickly if need be. So I would say it's just like going to the gym. Like you got to go to the gym and like get on the treadmill, hit the bench press, the leg lift, whatever. Like if you go regularly and can lift your weight, then you'll have no problem cranking something out if someone needs you to do something. So that means doing the work that's assigned to you, but also assigning yourself personal projects. And they don't have to be for anyone to see. Like they could just be for you or just for your homies. But the point is to like stay frosty, like stay fresh, like you said, like keep moving basically. Rock steady. Yeah. And that way always ready. Yeah. Once yep, when something comes along, you have the energy. As opposed to someone who's like, oh man, let me let me go warm up. You know, it's like, no, no, no. You gotta do your warm up daily or weekly, whatever is the practice, but keeping regular work going, whether it's professional or for you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've learned so much from you as a parent, you know, I think along the way, just because I watched you be a parent. And I remember even babysitting for your kids, you know, early on and stuff. And I just feel like it's been a really big shift in my life. And, you know, I know that you kind of went through that early and then recently also having another kid. How do you feel like having, you know, being a parent and being a working artist? Like, how do you find balance in it? Well, I think if there's that, such a thing, if there's such a thing. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a thing. I mean, you know, if it wasn't for my son, I wouldn't have gotten to children's books because he being able to read to him inspired me to want to pursue that field. And I didn't realize what a hole had been left in me as a kid who didn't enjoy reading at all. So I feel like they inspire a lot. And, you know, and now being able to watch animated shows with my daughter, who's only three, it's like, well, this is crap. <laughs> or this is like really awesome. Like, wow, I didn't know about this. So I feel like for one, like being able to do things with them is a very inspiring and it gives you hope for, for life in general moving forward. But I think also being able to see things new through their eyes. So you may have seen a mural before. You may have seen like, I don't know, a sculpture, but they haven't. So to be able to take them to go and see it, it's like experiencing it again. And that really gives you perspective. You're like, wow. There are still new things to be seen and felt and understood and heard just because I've already been through them before. It doesn't mean they aren't new to someone else. I think it's really important to be there for your kids. Like, you you know, you want to conquer the world. You want to be the baddest, the freshest. You want everybody to know your stuff. But that don't mean shit if your kids don't feel like you were there for them as a parent. Like, all that stuff, like, you can still do your thing, but, like, fame and all that is not really... That's not really, to me, what's it. Like, I want, even though my kid's mad at me at the moment, like, I want them to, like, feel like, you know, my dad was there or my mom or whatever the parent was there. Like, they might have been known for this, for these other people outside, but I know them as, you know, someone who cared about me. So I think it's really important to not take yourself too seriously, like, really be there for your family. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's just a natural priority shift that happens, you know, like before it was just like my only focus was my art career. You know, that was like my main drive. And now I'm like, dang, my main drive is like, I want to be a good parent. I want to be here for my daughter. I want her to grow up with me. And yeah. I want to be a badass artist. You know, it's like, yeah, and I'm, and it's like I'm, the and, but it runs differently now. And like, how yeah. do I do that as a good parent? How do you, you know, all those things, those questions that you start to ask yourself, which, you know, kind of creates new shifts. Yeah. And I was going to say, too, that it's important, like you've, you've done your job, you're there for them. You took them to the soccer game or their doctor's appointment or you listened to them while they cried. 
it is also important for them to see you be you as a person and like, look, mommy's got to go do her thing. Like you can come if you want, or you can stay at home with, you know, someone else, but like for them to know that you are a person as well and that I have my things that I got to do and you can come check it out or not, but just know that, you know, I'm still here, I, but I got to do my thing too. <laughs> Otherwise yeah. I'll go crazy. Yeah, exactly. For me to be a good mom, I need to do my thing too. <laughs> yes, yes. For me to exactly. be a happy individual. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Rob, you know, tell us a little bit about what's up next for you. What do you have coming down the pipeline? Okay, so I have a new picture book that just came out. It's called Alejandria Fights Back or La Lucha de Alejandria. And this is a story with Rise Home Stories Project and uh, poet and writer Leticia Hernandez Linares. This is a story about an Afro-Latina who fights back against eviction. And this is a story that's happening in so many communities all over the world, but very few picture books about that. So this story just came out this past August, and um, I encourage parents to go check it out from the library or the local bookstore and read it to your kids. I have a new story that's called Fresh Juice that will be coming out next year. But the thing that I'm most excited about that's coming soon is uh, I'm running a Kickstarter, or hopefully it'll be while this is airing, uh, which is an art book. And so as Yoshi mentions, like I draw a lot and I do a lot of sketchbooks, like tons of them. And whenever I get to visit schools, and not only do I get to read to them and like show them some of the art from the book, but I get to show them my sketchbook. And they're always, you know, they're into it. They're like, wow, that's cool. Like to see the inner workings of an artist. And so I thought it would be really awesome to publish a small book that's like taking some of those sketchbook pieces and finished drawings and paintings, you know, so they can take it home with them. And, you know, especially in the community of like black folks, people of color, it's really important to encourage young people who want to be artists early and like give them encouragement and show them other people like them and say, you can do this too. And you may not understand fully what they're trying to do, but to like, find as much as you can on it and encourage them. So I hope this will be a tool for parents and adults to encourage kids. The other thing I want the artwork to do is to kind of help parents give kids a way to unplug. Like they love to look at movies and love to look at the screen. That's all fine and great. But there's some times when you really got to turn that shit off and like go read a book or go ride your bike. And I'm just hoping this can be one of those things. So yeah, if if your listeners are interested, they can check it out. It's going to be called Art of Rob and it's on Kickstarter. That's so exciting. I mean, we used to say that we could do gallery shows just based on Rob's sketchbooks. They are incredibly beautiful and super impressive where there's like so many drawings on each page and, you know, just like at so many different angles and different motions, emotions and doing different motions. It's just very, very impressive. So I can't wait to see it, you know, put me down. I'm down. Yeah. I'm copping. I'm copping one. Okay. Thank I'm pre-ordering. You. I'm pre-ordering. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> and then, you know, if folks want to follow up with you, how do they find you online? Where are you at? What's your website, social handles, all that stuff? I am at robdontstop.com, R-O-B-D-O-N-T-S-T-O-P.com. And through there, you can find all my socials because they don't all have the same name. So, yeah, robdontstop.com. Awesome. Awesome. Rob, don't stop. And he doesn't stop. So, Rob, thank you so much for spending time with us today and sharing your story with our audience. We really appreciate you. Love you always. Thank you. Love you too. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at NotRealArtWorld.